Well, this morning, please turn to the book of Psalms. Once again, we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 39 together. Psalm chapter 39. As we turn to this psalm, I want to say that Psalm 38 and Psalm 39 really kind of closely go together. In both psalms, David describes himself in an awful state, assumedly due to his sin. And his inner struggle is evident as he seeks to handle the situation of suffering. I want to ask you, surely you haven't had a time of this, of inner struggle, in which a time of suffering or estrangement from others, or perhaps a time of feeling distant from God for one reason or another hasn't caused you to doubt or to wonder, has it? Read these words with me of David's struggle and David's faith. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make the scorn of the fool. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I have spent... I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. As we consider these words of David, inspired by the Holy Spirit for our good and our benefit, let us bow to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are the author of your word. It convicts and convinces sinners of their ways, calls them to repentance. And Lord, when your spirit is evident, it will convict all of us, changing our hearts and our souls. Father, do this within us. Help us to hear and to understand your word today. And Lord, whatever is inconsistent with your word, be it our thoughts, my words, or other things going on around us, let them pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I'm a baseball fan. I like to read articles about baseball, even when I'm on vacation. I read an article this week highlighting the father-son duo of Ed and Scott Spezio. Perhaps you've never heard of them. They were minor role players in their time as a father and son, hence this week, Father's Day, so forth. Ed Spezio was 
a baseball player who won one or two World Series. His son, Scott, won two World Series titles as well. The apex of their sport. Scott, the son, was a clean-cut young athlete who endured an injury, marital trouble, and other problems. And soon he turned to alcohol and then to drugs. He became an alcoholic and drug addict even while he was still playing and succeeding in his last year or two of baseball. Things got so bad, he of course became estranged from his family and particularly saddening was his estrangement from his father. His father one day, in a celebration at the St. Louis Cardinals Stadium, was invited to celebrate father and son in a celebration they were having at the park. They had not talked to each other for some time, but it was at that moment, not that Scott shared his struggles with his father, but took an event to begin to change his life. Years and years later, Scott reached rock bottom. His parents had begun attending counseling to know how to deal with those struggling and suffering with drug and alcohol addiction. And Ed got to be there for his son. But you know, even more important than even these struggles of alcohol and drugs with Scott Spezio is our sin problem. For you, it might be the abuse of drugs and alcohol. For you, it might be other types of sins. We have many different sins that we struggle with. But our sin problem is before a holy God who is also our Father. If we are truly his children, that is, he will call us unto himself because we are his sheep and will trust in him and ask him for forgiveness, then he is a Father who delights even to discipline his children. In this particular psalm, it becomes evident that David, whatever situation he's in, is in despair, suffering, perhaps even from some disease or something like that. And he's suffering because of his sin and God's discipline upon him. So here we are, first of all, the first few verses mentioning his silence under discipline. Then the next few verses giving wisdom under discipline. Then we see an expression of his faith under discipline. And finally, the last two verses give us his prayer under such discipline. The first few verses remind us of the difficulty of doing what we vow to do, doesn't it? The first verse says, I said. It's kind of a vow or a sense of commitment of something that he was going to do. He says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. First of all, it sounds as if, in this case, he's illustrating the idea or euphemism that silence is golden. Isn't he? He's saying in the situation where he's suffering because of sin and he may have some doubts or questions or problems because of this suffering, we find that there's inner turmoil within him. He finds that perhaps sometimes the best thing to do is remain silent. And this is golden or good in a couple of circumstances when, first of all, it is to refrain from sinning. He's afraid, evidently, 
because of his situation and because of the turmoil going on within him because of the suffering that he's going to say something about God that's not true. Or he's going to say something in his suffering that is unacceptable in God's presence. And so he vows this silence so that he will not sin with his tongue. This is a good thing. In fact, James tells us that the tongue is like a wildfire. It's hard to control and it can do a lot of damage. David is smart by understanding that. But it's not only smart to, at times, remain silent rather than to be rash with our words to present, prevent ourselves from sinning. It is also golden when it yields self-control before enemies. He says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. What can happen when we say things rashly? You know, in my passions, in my heat of the moment, when I have a first response to something, sometimes the wise individuals around me will say, now wait a minute, before you say anything, think about what you're going to say. Or perhaps you want to respond with an email or with some other social media context, or you want to tell the world about all your problems. And those smart people who counsel us will say, be careful what you say. And sometimes we understand, particularly when there are unbelievers present, the wicked here, we understand that no matter what we say, they may take it completely out of context, misunderstand it, or say things that we didn't mean. So sometimes it is certainly good, even in the times when we're struggling ourselves, to just not say anything. The problem is, there's also a time when silence is not so golden. Is that not true? Here's what he says at the end of verse 2. My distress grew worse. And then verse 3. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. You see, it's not so golden because we struggle to maintain such self-control and silence when we're suffering, don't we? When we suffer, we want to tell others. When we suffer, we want to complain about it. We want to tell others all these bad things that are happening to us. After all, we say that misery loves company. And we just want to play the victim card. We want to do all kinds of things to let the world know our struggle for suffering. And after all, at some point in that suffering, we might certainly ask that question, this is not fair, is it? It doesn't seem like I should be suffering to this extent. In fact, the psalmist tells us, David does, he says the fire burned. His passions could not be contained. And sometimes that's true with us too, isn't it? If we're on our sickbed and the pain is overwhelming, the passions we have about that and the things we want to say about it, we just can't help but to bubble it out. And this is what takes place with David. Now the good thing about this is David does not do this in the presence of his enemies. He does not do this to find solace in the people around him. Who is it that he pours this out to? He pours it out to God. 
I have to say, if this was David's practice every moment of his life, I think he's a better man than I am. If you're like me, there are times when you've done something stupid or foolish, and there are consequences of that stupidity and foolishness. It might be just arcane uh, consequences. It might be very deep and dark consequences. But when those consequences come, I want people to know how much I'm suffering. You know, if I was running a red light and ran into somebody, I would want everybody to know how it wasn't fair that that yellow light didn't last as long as it was supposed to. I would want everybody to know that it's not fair that my insurance is going to go up. That it's not fair. You get the idea. But even if it's not things that I'm trying to justify myself about, it might be that I just don't want to suffer. I want people to know I'm struggling. I want people to know that I have doubts about my faith. I want people to know all kinds of different things. And here, whether it's Job, who sat there in silence with his friends until the friends could not take it any longer. And then Job said some things he probably regretted too, didn't he? Or whether it's the situation of dire distress when someone is suffering the ravages of a disease and pondering the end of their lives. You see, this is the wisdom part under this discipline. It sounds like this wisdom, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. You have Job, and you have Ecclesiastes, you have bits of Proverbs, and here in the Psalms, and part of the wisdom literature that's repeated over and over and over again is regarding the brevity of life. Make me know my end, what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. That's really going to make him feel better, isn't it? Lord, I'm struggling and I'm suffering. Now let me know how short my days are. But that's wisdom, isn't it? Is it wise to ponder such things? In our society around us, we're entertaining ourselves to death to the point where people don't ponder the basic life questions of wisdom. How many young people ask that question? How brief is my life? Now, one reason they don't is because they're young people. After all, they, they think they're, they're, they're uh, immortal and they have decades before them, yet they don't know the time of their demise. But we old people, too. How often do we dwell on the fact that our life is short and our days may be coming to an end? But that is wise. David asked God to let him know the brevity of his life. Why? Because it's wise. Even as we search for meaning. Notice what it says. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as mere breath. You see, there's a sense here of, of understanding that because of the brevity of life, when we're searching for meaning in our suffering, when we're searching for meaning in difficult trials or temptations, when we're looking at the world around us, there is a sense of understanding if our lives are really short, there is something that must be there that is important for us to know. Even as we compare ourselves to God, my lifetime is as nothing before you. You see, the first aspect of wisdom 
is understanding that we're not God. God is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning and no end. But that's not like us, is it? We have a beginning. And at least in this physical life, we know that we have an end. We are different from God. Therefore, we are reliant upon the one who is above us and beyond us, our creator and our master who gives us our days. Our purpose and meaning in life is non-existent unless it's tied up in an eternal God. Because if we know that our life is short and our days are brief, we know that in the end, all is vanity unless there's some deeper meaning to our life. So wisdom under discipline regards the brevity of life, but it also regards the vanity of life. If you want to know Ecclesiastes in just a couple of verses, here it is. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man eats up wealth and does not know who will gather. I'm sure you came this morning to hear Ecclesiastes. It's a very important book. You see, the vanity of life is found in the actions and the restlessness of man. Here's what it says. They go about as a shadow. In other words, it seems real, but there's a sense in which it's just a shadow of reality. They go about as if there is a void there, even in their turmoil, their agitation, their uproar, the din of life. And as they're going about this restlessness and the actions of man, they realize there is a sense of nothingness to it. Think about the hours you spend watching TV. Think about the lifetime you spend rooting for a ball team. Think about the actions that you take on a daily basis, even your daily routines, that in the end, you have to do them all over again the next day. What's the point? After all, when you brush your teeth, you've got to do it again that evening. At least you should. Once you get up and you bathe yourself, you get dirty during the day, and you have to bathe yourself again. All these things, actions, meaningless, the restlessness, all the turmoil that we have about life, all the th ways in which we get upset about the latest news story on CNN or Fox News or whatever's in between. It's all vanity. Not only that, but the goals of so many lives. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will get. In the gathering of the treasure by man, there's vanity. You may have the most wonderful house in town. It may be the best supplied house. It might be the most beautiful house. It might be the most expensive house in town. But at some point, you're going to die. It's going to go to somebody else who never knew you. That person will probably rip it all to shreds compared to what you enjoyed. And it will be either totally different or torn down and built into something else. It's all vanity. This is wisdom. 
under discipline. Why is it wise? Because it brings a new perspective to those with a shortened outlook on life. Some of you in this room have obtained a disease called cancer. And some of you have even been given a certain time frame in which you might live with this disease. You know, on the one hand, we know that often these timelines are not accurate. They could be shorter, they could be longer, they could be completely outside the realm of the doctor's knowledge because God's in control of our lives, not the disease or the doctors. However, when you obtain that diagnosis and you begin to analyze how much time you have left, your perspective changes, doesn't it? The things that are important to you, the things you want to do, the goals you want to accomplish, the things in your bucket list, as they say today, but this new perspective to a believer is such that he understands the Lord's heavy hand even of bringing terrible things into our life should bring us closer to him. Because here's what David says. He goes through all this. He says, everything's vanity. My life is short. Let me know how short my life is because I know that in the end, all the things that we're really doing, many of them have no meaning whatsoever. But then we get to verse 7. It changes the whole context of this prayer. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? And then he expresses his faith under this discipline. He says, my hope is in you. His hope is not in his wealth. His hope is not in his attainments, his reputation, his job, his family. His hope is in the Lord. It's a personal expectation. This word for hope is either a hope or an expectation. The, the idea of hope in scripture is not a hope so hope. It is a, I know that it's coming hope. This is an expectation that God is in his life, God is going to do things for him, and God is going to act on his behalf and keep his covenant promises. Hence here in this scripture, he uses in this case the word Lord, Adonai, but by the end of the psalm, he returns to the word L-O-R-D, the covenant name for God, which reminds him of the covenant promises of God's commitment to him it is a personal expectation but it's also asking because of that personal expectation that the heavy hand of God upon him to discipline him for his sin perhaps in this case it's some illness or other consequence of his sin he says deliver me from all my transgressions do not make me the scorn of the fool he says rescue me from rebellion and disgrace. This word transgression, when you see it in the Old Testament, is really the word for rebellion or revolt. David has been born into the covenant family of God, and yet he is a rebel against the holy God, just like you and me. If we were born into a covenant family, we are a rebel against the holy God because we're sinners. And he says, Lord, deliver me from this. So there's hope in the Lord by faith. The verse 9 is very interesting because on the one hand, we see it in light of the first three verses when he described his silence. 
Here he says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. You see, this is submission to the Lord, bringing silence. This is not the vow of silence to keep yourself from sinning or to keep the words that you speak from being used the wrong way by your enemies. This is silence coming before a holy God who has loved you and committed himself to you and will deliver you from your transgressions. And because he has done it, it brings you to silence in awe and wonder. David is writing this before Jesus died on the cross. His hope and expectation is in the Savior that was promised to come from his line. For us, we look back on Jesus Christ and we recognize, Lord, you have done it. And it silences us in a world of noise. It silences us. And then we request for deliverance, not just from our sin, but deliverance from God's discipline. Request for deliverance from discipline is, first of all, in this form, he says, remove your plague from me. This is why we think it might have been a disease of some sort. It can mean plague. It can also mean stroke or blow upon somebody. David knows for whatever reason, because of his sin and the the understanding that he is a sinner, he knows that this particular situation has been brought upon him to turn him to the Lord. Why does he know this? It's because the Holy Spirit has been working in his heart and convicting him. He says, I am spent by the the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. There's a recognition here of these consuming rebukes, that they have consumed him. In other words, they're ebbing the life out of him. His life is ebbing away. I don't know if you can use ebbing as as an active verb here, but you get the idea. Here, his life is ebbing away. Maybe it's not literally shortened by this disease, but at least the emotional stress of what's going on in his life is such that he feels his strength disappearing from him, and the Lord is consuming him. Why? Because he's chastising David. Not only this, but there's a recognition here of the vanity of his cravings. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. I was reminded over the last little while of one of Tim Keller's favorite illustrations, and an illustration that so many uh, of my age in seminary always were looking to the Lord of the Rings series for their illustrations. In fact, there were jokes that some people preached about the Lord of the Rings and then referred to the Bible. That's sad. But the idea of this illustration is this. There was a ring in there that the person who had that ring, it became precious to him. It was the thing he thought about the most. This is one of the the, the great uh, illustrations of all of literature. 
is that for some reason that ring in the eye of the beholder became the most precious thing to him in the world. They were willing to die for that ring. They were willing to do whatever it took to maintain possession of that ring, even so much so that the main character in the series who goes off to destroy that ring gets to the chasm of the fire, the crack of doom, and he's unable to throw the ring in because it's so precious to him, he cannot do it. There is something in your life that is very precious to you. And the great danger we have is that it becomes more precious to you than God himself. It might be something good. It might be your spouse or a family member. It might be something that you worked hard to earn. It might be some other thing that is good in our culture, like music or sports or entertainment of some sort. And something about those things are good because God made these things. But something becomes so precious and dear to you that God has to destroy it in order to maintain his relationship with you. Because it's become an idol in your heart. And here David says, You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. If you're living your life for something other than the Lord... It is vanity. It is not only vanity, it is taking you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is something in which God might at some point in your life attack that particular precious thing for the sake of your soul. You might think in your life that, Lord, how could you take what was most precious to me? How could you possibly do that in my life? It has caused me so much suffering and angst and problems, and God may just, by his grace through his spirit, have been taking that away from you so that you would turn closer to him and that you would repent from your sins and turn to the Lord. May the Lord, this is the hardest prayer for anybody to make. It's the hardest prayer for a father to make for his children. It's the hardest prayer for an individual to make for his own sake. May the Lord take away what is precious to you and to me if it results in our repentance and eternal life. But this is the prayer. Verses 12 and 13. After all this, David with his turmoil and his struggle and his doubts and his fears knowing that God will take away even what is most precious to him. And he did, didn't he? God took away his infant son. God took away Absalom. God took away child after child after child in David's life. Why? So that he could understand his own sin and he could understand the love of a father who wanted his attention to worship him and adore him. And David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. He uses two different words here for alien or sojourner. One is translated guest, the other is translated sojourner. I don't know why he uses those two parallel words. I do know this. I agree with the one commentator who wrote this. It's illustrating someone without rights. A sojourner or an alien has no rights in the land. And David is saying before God, I have no rights in your heavenly kingdom. There's nothing I can offer you that expresses to you I have rights before you. So someone completely without rights or advantage of any sort, I throw myself on your mercy. 
forgive me my tears. Sometimes that's all we have, isn't it? You see, this is the difference between today's victim mentality and the suffering saint. The victim mentality goes to God and says, it's not fair what you're doing to me, I have rights too. But the suffering saints comes to God and says, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I have no rights before you. There is nothing I have done to earn my salvation or deliverance from your discipline or from my sins. But I throw myself on you with my tears and just ask that you hear what I have to say. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Lord, just go easy on me before I die. You see, this is the expression of both the struggle of the believer and the love of the Heavenly Father. The struggle of the believer who, when it comes down to the rubber meeting the road, it says this, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, even if it causes moments of doubt and heated complaints, even if it costs seasons of suffering and loss, even if it causes the understanding that, that everything I've accomplished in life really is nothing before you, in the light of all eternity, I may have built my life on straw and stubble that will be burned up, yet in the end, even if it's just me alone and not my works, let it be so, O Lord. You are the consumer of dear things. Let it be done. Let it be done that I might attain eternal life. Let it be done that I might be turned to you. Let it be done that the world might know that you are the God who loves his children. So much that will take away what is the dearest from us, if that is what is best. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do this. Lord, if we live long enough, all of us have spent some nights in tears. Lord, if we, by your grace, have our days more than a few decades, we understand that there is nothing more important than Jesus Christ and him crucified. There is nothing better to live for than for you, our Father and our God. Rescue us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.